this community, this counterculture community of little Christ. And then last week we looked, we added more to this, and we looked at Lot sitting at the, at the gate, and Abraham sitting at the gate of his tent, and, and how that's what we are as the city of God, that we are, we are people that just offer love and hospitality to strangers. And then we saw how Abraham, too, was a priest, how he was standing in the gap for wicked Sodom, like he was just pouring his heart out to God to save that city. Well, today we're going to add a little bit more to this, and we're going to look at Jonah chapter 4. And so why don't we turn to that right now? That's found on page 655 if you have a blue Bible like mine. And let's stand for the reading of God's Word. But Jonah was greatly displeased and became angry. Why is Jonah angry? Well, all you need to do is read the verse before where it says, When God saw what the Ninevites did, this wicked city, and how they turned from their evil ways, repented, God had compassion and did not bring upon them the destruction that he had threatened. And so when Jonah saw this, he was greatly displeased and became angry. And here's his prayer. Oh Lord, is this not what I said when I was still at home? You want to know why I left Tarshish? When you said go west, I went east. Or maybe it was east and I went west. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending Calamity. Interesting thing about that word relents. It's the, same, it's, it's the same word for repent. God repents? Wow. Now, O Lord, take away my life, for it is better for me to die than to live. But the Lord replied, Have you any right to be angry? And Jonah went out and sat down at a place east of the city. There he made himself a shelter, a sukkah, a tent sat in the shade, and he waited to see what would happen to the city. But then the Lord God provided a vine and made it grow up over Jonah to give shade for his head and to ease his discomfort. Oh, and Jonah was very happy about the vine. But at dawn the next day, God provided a worm which chewed the vine so that it withered. When the sun rose, God provided a scorching east wind, and the sun blazed on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. He wanted to die, and he said, it'd be better for me to die than to live. God said to Jonah, do you have a right to be angry about the vine? I do, he said. I'm angry enough to die. But God said, you have been concerned about this vine. Though you did not tend it, you did not make it grow. It sprang up overnight and it died overnight. But Nineveh has more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left and many cattle as well. Should I not be concerned? Meaning, actual, should I not have intense love and compassion for that great city? God's word. You can be seated. 
Three times in the book of Jonah, God says, Jonah, go to the city, that great city. Now, I don't have time right now, but hopefully this will get flushed out in the weeks to come. It's already been flavored uh, by the text that we've looked at. But this is not a unique call for Jonah. But I don't want to stay there right now because we'll cover that next week. And you might even want to look at Jeremiah 29 this week because we're going to see that this was not a unique call for Jonah, but it was a call to Israel, to the people of God, to go, to move into the city. But what does Jonah do? Verse 5, it says that Jonah moves out of the city. Jonah refuses to partner with God to reach the city. Well, you say, but he went to Nineveh. Yeah, he did go to Nineveh, but even though he went to the city, he hated the city. And the reason he hated the city is because that's where the bad, wicked, creepy pagans lived who deserve God's judgment. So the text says, Jonah sets up a tent or a sukkah outside the city. Why? What's he seeking? Comfort. And comfort will always be the thing that drives us out of the city, which will cause us to avoid the city. Personal comfort. In fact, the thing that symbolizes the comfort that Jonah is seeking is shade. Now, shade doesn't mean that much to us. I mean, here we are in West Michigan, as we are reminded of Max, and we're lucky if we get a few sunny days every year, and we have these winters and all of that. But in this part of the world, shade is something people sought every single day. When it's 100 or 110 or 120 degrees, shade is something people sought. Now, if you read especially the Old Testament, you realize that God says, this is what I am. I am shade. In fact, um, I mean, you can, you can read about it in the Psalms, one of David's favorite depictions of God and especially as he was experiencing hard times, is you hide me. You hide me in the shade or the shadow of your wing. Because the Hebrew word shade, cell, is uh, the same word for shade or shadow. You hide me there. Or one of my favorites is Psalm 121, where he says, I lift my eyes to the hills, for where does my help come? My help comes from you, the maker of heaven and earth. And then he says, um, I will watch over you, and I will be the shade at your right hand. Which means this, when life is overwhelming, when we think we can't take another step, God says, I'm your shade at your right hand. Hold out your right hand. I don't care what you're going through. I don't care how tough 
times are, God promises to be never further than your reach. And he promises that much shade. In fact, usually, that's all the shade he provides. Just enough. And I think so many times, you know, when we're going through tough times, we want God to just get rid of the circumstances. We want God to fix the problem. Sometimes God does that, but more often, what God says, as you go through this tough time, I will be your shade at your right hand. I will give you just enough shade for today. I'd like to think right now that every person, to some extent, is moved as you just consider that in the times in your own life when God has been just enough shade during a tough time. And I would also guess right now in a room this side that size that some of you are, are there right now experiencing the shade of God just enough for each day. This thing's taken further, this whole idea of shade. In fact, you can go to Psalm 80 and you can either turn there or you can listen to me. But Psalm 80, 8 through 11 says this, I brought a vine out of Egypt, drove out the nations, and I planted it. I cleared the ground for it. It took root and filled the land. And this is what he says. I mean, this is a picture of what God did for the people of Israel. He took them out of Egypt. He cleared that land called the promised land. And he planted them there. And then he says this. The mountains were covered with its shade. The mighty cedars with its branches. It sent out its bows to the sea. It shoots as far as the river. And here's the picture. I planted this vine. And it became so massive. Its roots went deep. And its branches went far became the shade of the world. In fact, this is Israel's mission. Israel's mission was this. As you experience my shade, Israel, you are to be shade to the world. You see what God is reminding Jonah of? Jonah, what's wrong with you? You so badly want my shade but why do you refuse to be shade have you forgotten that I've blessed you I've changed you I've transformed you I've rescued you I've provided shade to you so that you and I can partner in providing shade to those 120,000 Ninevites are so lost they don't even know the right hand from their left. Now this is taken even further because in Isaiah 32 verse 2 it says this. See, a king, a king will reign in righteousness and rulers will rule 
with justice. Now this king that will reign with righteousness, this is a reference to the Messiah. And when the Messiah comes, then this will happen. The next verse. Each person will be like a shelter from the wind, a refuge from the storm, like streams of living water in the desert, and the shadow or the shade of a great rock in a thirsty land. Who's the great rock? Messiah. And when Messiah comes, who's going to be living water? Who's going to be shelter from the storm? Who's going to be shade? Not just Messiah. Each person. That's powerful. That, to me, answers the question, who are you, Rod, and why are you here? I'm blessed of God, treasured possession, and why am I here? To partner with him to be living water, shelter, and shade to a world in chaos. I'll take it further. Go to Acts chapter 5. Verse 14, and I'm reading now from the NASB. For some reason I like this is a more accurate translation, word for word. Describing the movement of the early church, multitudes of men, women were constantly added to their number. To such an extent that they even carried the the sick out into the streets and laid them on cots and pallets so that when Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on any one of them. You see that? Now listen. It's not like Peter just has this magic, Peter is fulfilling Isaiah 32, verse 2. And the way I take this is this. I mean, I I think this is just an awesome picture, not just of the early church, not just of people who might have the label apostle, But right now, I'm looking at Peter's. Right now. And this is what we are to be. This is a picture of what we are to be in a world. God blesses us, and he wants to partner with us to reach this city and to reach the world, to change the world. So let me ask a few questions. Who are you shade to right now? Are you shade to your street corner? Or let me ask this. 
how much time do you spend seeking shade? Seeking more shelter, more comfort for moi? Or how much time do you spend seeking to be shade to others? Do your neighbors, your co-workers, do the people that you do life with, when life becomes overwhelming to them, do they know that they can go to you knowing, oh, I'm going to experience shade. Now let's just be honest right now. To some of you, you look at your stress-filled life and you think, oh, you're kidding me. Now I got to go to a church that's just going to pile more stress on my life. Now we got to reach Grand Rapids. Okay? Why all this pressure? Pressure? Are you kidding me? Pressure? You know the greatest thing going on right now in Grand Rapids? The greatest thing going on right now in all the great cities of our world, the greatest thing going on right now in our universe, it's the kingdom of heaven. This isn't pressure. This is privilege. He wants to partner with us. He wants to partner with us to reach the world. Here's Jonah. You were here last week. In light of last week, I'm embarrassed for this guy. I really am. I mean, what is this guy doing outside the city? Look at verse 5. And this explains why he's doing what he's doing, why he's outside there, why he's building the shelter, why he's seeking uh, this comfort, and he's waiting for the show. <laughs> it's like he's got his seat. He, he's probably got a Coke in one hand, popcorn in the other. He's got a front row seat now to fireworks. He's going to watch, hopefully, Sodom and Gomorrah. God bringing fire down from heaven. And he can't wait to see it. He's the antithesis of Abraham. Abraham just pleading with God. God, would you please spare that city? Would you please, would you please, would you please? And here's Jonah just like, I can't wait. Who are you like? Honestly, have the courage to really ask yourself this question. Are you like Abraham or are you Jonah? Do you love the city or do you despise it? Do you seek to avoid it or are you seeking to change it? Do you weep over it? Are you pleading with God that he would revive it? Or do you disdain it?
God will never allow us to change that city if we don't first love it. I love Jonah. I love the book of Jonah because more than anything, it shows us how gracious God is. As angry as Jonah is, do you ever see God's anger in this book? In fact, this whole book is about God's grace. First, it's God's grace to Nineveh. Now it's God's grace to Jonah. And God grows this vine, and he uses this vine to an exposed and already exposed heart. I want us to look at Jonah's response to this vine. In verse 6, it says he's exceedingly happy. This is the happiest we see Jonah in the whole book. I mean, he's, he's ecstatic. He's like Gollum now when he finally gets the ring on his finger, okay? He's just like dancing for joy. I don't know why I think of Gollum here, but I did. I thought of that this week. That's a hilarious part in the movie, by the way. What's he happy about? A vine. <laughs> what are you happy about? What really makes you happy? What makes you ecstatic? See, I think God, oftentimes, he'll send vines and then he'll take a vine away to expose what's really in our hearts. And now look at Jonah's response when the vine is taken away. He's so angry. God says, why are you angry? I just am. I'm so angry. I want to die right now. Why? I'll tell you why. Jonah's personal comfort has been taken away. But I'll tell you why. There's a deeper problem than just his comfort being, being taken away. Jonah. Do you now see what makes you happy? Do you now see what you love, how much you love this vine? How much you love your own personal comfort? Jonah, what's more important? This vine or those 120,000 people? are so lost, they don't even know the right hand from their left. <laughs> and Jonah, like that vine that I caused to grow, I grew that city. That city's my city. Those people are creations of my hands. And as pagan and as lost as that city may be, I love that city. I love it. What's wrong with you, Jonah? How can your heart be more concerned about that stupid little vine and so unconcerned for that city? What's wrong with you, Jonah? Why does your heart just not explode with love for that city and for those 120,000 people? don't know me. And that's how the book ends. <laughs> right there. And the reason it ends there, because it's like, let's push 
Jonah aside, and now let's allow that question fall on us. Because God is asking us the same question. Grand Rapids is my city. I made it. I love it. Those 500,000 or so people that live there, my heart bleeds for them. Why don't you love them? Why, why do you love your cars? Why do you love your, your, your houses? Why do you love your careers? Why do you love your comforts more than the city? Why? I'm serious. Why? We'll never reach the city if we don't love it. Let me tell you what's wrong with Jonah. Maybe it'll give some insight into our hearts. Jonah, pure and simple, is a lost man. You say, what? This guy's a prophet. He's a religious leader. He just preached, and this whole city repented. How can a lost man be used like that? Listen. God can speak through a jackass as we know through scriptures. And trust me, I know that. No amens right now, okay? <laughs> Jonah is lost. Not as a pimp, not as a prostitute, not as a drug addict. He's not lost as a wicked sodomite. He's not lost as a wicked Ninevite. Jonah is lost as a prophet of God, as a Hebrew as he says in chapter 1, when they ask him, who are you, Jonah? He says, I'm a Hebrew. That would be the equivalent of us saying today, I'm a Christian. So I am. I don't have anyone in mind right now. But trust me on this, there are all kinds of pastors and preachers who are lost. There are all kinds of Christians who go to church week after week who are lost. And they're lost not always in their badness, but oftentimes preachers and Christians are lost in their goodness. And here's the deal. We know this about God. God doesn't care about labels. He doesn't care about titles. He doesn't care about appearances. God doesn't care about who's in, who's out. He doesn't care so much who the good guys are and who the bad guys are. God's concerned about one thing. It's the heart. For out of the heart flows the, the wellsprings of life. Jonah's heart got it all right on the outside. His heart's rotten. And his anger and despair show us how rotten his heart is. That doesn't mean that all anger is, is from a rotten heart. Jesus got mad. That doesn't mean that all despair comes from a rotten heart. Job had despair. But when you see despair flowing out of this kind of anger with Jonah, it leads us right to the condition of his heart. Now look at verse 1 because it shows us why he's angry. I'm sorry, verse 2. Here's his prayer to God. Oh, Lord, is this not what I said when I was still at home? 
That is why I was so quick to flee Tarshish. See, he didn't want to go to Nineveh because while that was scary and intimidating, when God said go this direction, Jonah went this direction. Why? Because he knew at the drop of a sackcloth that God would take pity on them and have compassion on them. I just knew it about you, God. And what Jonah thinks is this, that God's amazing grace, his amazing love, that he showed to me and to my people, he's angry now that God is showing this love and grace to those people. And what Jonah is lost in is self-righteousness. Self-righteousness is a form of pride. In fact, this is the Old Testament's telling of the prodigal of the parable son. I don't know if you remember that story, but it's the older brother after the younger brother has just squandered everything, uh, left the home, left the father, left that relationship, and just lived recklessly with prostitutes. But he turns, he repents, he comes back to the father, and the father just runs, and he meets him, and he embraces him, and he kisses him. Kills the fatted calf, throws the party, but the older brother is just stewing, angry. How dare you? How dare you kiss him? How dare you embrace him? How dare you kill the fattened calf? How dare you throw the party for him? He's an embarrassment. I have slaved away all these years for you. You owe me. Jonah's the older brother. Because what Jonah is doing here is he is breaking the world down into the good people and the bad people. And the good people are his people. People just like him. And the bad people, everybody else. And the good people are the people who know God, who keep God's rules, who follow his traditions, who go to church, who keep the Sabbath. We are the ones who deserve your grace. And everybody else, those wicked, creepy pagans, you kidding? Your grace? Give them hell! How on earth, God, are you showing the same kind of love and grace that you did to us, to them, those people? And he's beside himself. And this is what he's saying to God. God, kill me because I don't want to live in a universe ruled by a loving, gracious God like you. And what Jonah's anger leading to despair exposes is it, it, it exposes Jonah's real God. Now listen. If when you lose something, and then you lose all hope, that thing you lost was your hope. 
if you lose something that causes you to feel like you're nothing, then that thing was your everything. This is why Jonah's life has lost all meaning. He just lost his real God. Jonah's real God is not the true God. Jonah's real God is, I'm a Hebrew. I'm a prophet of God. I'm one of the good guys. In fact, his entire identity and his sense of worth is based on his feelings of moral and spiritual superiority to other cultures, races, and religions. I'm better than the rest of the world because I'm a Hebrew. I'm a Christian. And this, rather than God, became the real basis for his identity, his significance, his security, this is Jonah's salvation. This is Jonah's real God. And we said this a couple of weeks ago. The true nature of sin is not simply breaking the rules. The true nature of sin is when we find our identity, our security, our significance, and let me add this as well, our salvation in anything other than God. That's the essence of sin. And so therefore, jo Jonah is every bit of an idol worshiper as much as these pagans. His idol really is himself. It's his strategy for self-salvation. It's having a righteousness that's all about me and what I do and my efforts and how good I perform. I've labored for you all these years. And Jonah turned his religion into an idol. And so what the book of Jonah wants us to see is this, and this ought to be just like falling on our hearts because a lot of us have been raised in religious upbringings. But Jonah is more lost as a religious person than the irreligious people he's preaching to. And this kind of lostness is dangerous. Because it's easy to see the lostness of a wicked Sodomite or a wicked Ninevite or a younger brother who just squanders and all the money and lives recklessly with prostitutes. I mean, we can see that a thousand miles away. But this kind of lostness, oh, it looks so good on the outside. So the problem with some of the Pharisees, their religion became an idol, prided themselves on, I know this, and I do this, and I do that, and I do that, and I do this, and that, and that, and this. And you know what Jesus says to them? Prostitutes, 
and tax collectors are coming into the kingdom of God ahead of you. Why? Because you guys are so lost in your self-righteousness that you can't see the most basic truth of the gospel. A sinner saved by grace. The most self-righteous thing we could do this morning is say, Jonah's problem is not my problem. And I think one of the reasons why this book ends with a question instead of an answer is because this question, God wants to come right at us. Every human heart is bent towards self-righteousness. We want to think it's all about us. We want to think that we have control, that we can even control God, because if I do this, this, and this, then God has to do this, this, and this. That becomes an idol. Now, I want to start with this. Why is this significant, especially in this whole theme of the city, this issue of self-righteousness? It's significant because when you and I are self-righteous, we can't be a comfort to broken people. We are the most unsafe place for people in chaos when we're self-righteous. Self-righteous people, they don't love the things that God loves because they love themselves and therefore they're incapable of loving the city. They're incapable of loving lost, broken people. Self-righteous people are incapable of being what Abraham was, being city gates and, and being priests who just give of themselves to stand in the gap. They're incapable of being shade because they're all about my shade and getting more shade for me. Self-righteous people are the most hurtful, judgmental, critical, discouraging people on earth. And part of the reason is because they think they're better than everybody else. In fact, they can't help but think this when they look at, huh, those people, boy, it, it'd take a miracle, a, a huge miracle for those people to be saved. Are you kidding me? Do you know you're a miracle? See, people who have this idea that I'm a sinner saved by your grace, they just know they're walking miracles. And therefore, they just, they know, huh? Of course God could save that person. You know, I know why. He saved me. And God can reach my neighbors. Why? He reached me. And God can do the miracle of reaching the city. Because he reached a sinner like me. Secondly, why this is significant. There are lost people here today. I don't have anybody in mind, trust me. But I know that our churches are filled today with good moral rule-keeping, lost Christians. And maybe you're not lost, but it's also filled with people who are self-righteous. Who am I talking about? Some of you are scared I'm going to start pointing you out right now. 
talk about me. The sediments of pride and self-righteousness still lie deep in my heart. I'm talking about you. I think Jonah actually knew the gospel and the fish, but I think he forgot it at the vine. Here's the beautiful thing about the story of Jonah. God never gives up, not just on the wicked Ninevites. God doesn't give up on self-righteous people like Jonah. This is why God sends storms. This is why God sends great fish. This is why he sends vines and worms, because he is chasing after our hearts to remind us of the gospel. You're more loved than you could ever dream. And you're a sinner saved by my grace. And this is why God will eventually send even more than that. Eventually God is going to send his son. And Jesus said when he was here on earth, someone greater than Jonah is here. What I love about Jesus, as we think about the city, that Jesus wept and prayed for the city that would kill him. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, I long to just gather you in my arms. But Jesus also, I think of those last words on the cross as he hung there, as that city killed him, and he cried out, it's finished. And those words literally mean, I did it. I lived the life you were supposed to live. I died the death you were supposed to die. Stop trying to save yourself. Just come to me. Throw all of yourself into me. George Whitfield, the great preacher during the revivals with John Wesley, said this, and I'm going to end with this. Two things that a person needs to do to experience genuine change. Two things. You want, to you want to experience genuine change, two things. Number one, repent of your sin. Repent means I've been living here. I've been going this way. My life's been entangled in all these idols and things like that. And it's like, I'm done. I let go. I give it up. And I turn. I throw all of me and turn all of me towards Christ. That's repentance. Some of you are living in Nineveh. I don't have to talk about what your sin is. The sin of Nineveh is obvious, and you know what it is. Repent from it. Turn from it. To use the words of Craig, we're just a community of people that are, that are turning from this and returning with our whole hearts to God. Repent. Whitfield says the second thing you need to do not only repent of your sin, but you need to repent of your self-righteousness. He says self-righteousness is the last idol that needs to be plucked out of your heart before you are to become a Christian. Are you Jonah? If we're going to reach this city, and for some of us, if we're going to go from being lost 
to found. Because those are God's categories. Not good, not bad. It's lost and found. We need to repent of our self-righteousness. And I think the people of Nineveh show us exactly what we need to do. You can look at Jonah 3, verse 5. It says, the Ninevites believed God. They declared a fast. And all of them, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. From the greatest to the least, there was this public repentance. I'm turning. I'm letting go of it. And I'm returning to you, God, with all my heart. Those guys showed guts. They had the guts to hear God's word. They had the guts to take God's word deep in their life and apply it to their life. And they had the guts to respond to it. I want to know this morning, will there be guts in this room today? Guts. The word has been spoken. I pray to God it's been heard. And I pray to God we have the courage and the guts to respond in repentance. Let's pray. God, I just, you did your own work in my heart this week, Lord, as I studied this. And I started off, Lord, just looking at it, almost <laughs> patting myself on the back and saying, God, I just thank you. I'm not like this guy. Thank you that I'm more like Abraham. And I thank you, God, that you've given me such a heart for people and such a heart for you and such a heart for this city. But God, as I studied this thing further and further and further, God, your Holy Spirit spoke to my heart. And you revealed to me, Lord, self-righteousness that lies deep within me. And so, God, this morning, I say, have mercy on me, a sinner. And God, as, 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 as the shepherd, Lord, of this community, Lord, I just pray, Lord, that every one of the sheep, Lord, would, would, follow, would follow me as I follow you with all my heart, and that we'd have the courage today to repent and to turn from any idol, any love that's too much, and that we come to you, return to you with all our hearts.